If you would like a free newsletter on this or other subjects, just give us a call at Christian Answers. The phone number is area code 512-218-8022. That's 512-218-8022. Or you could email us at cdebater at aol.com. That's cdebater at aol.com. and welcome once again to our program. I'm Larry Wessels, your host, and I want to thank you for being with us today. This is Christian Answers of Austin, Texas, and we're here for another presentation on a, what we think to be an important subject that uh, Christians eventually will have to deal with one way or the other. And the subject for tonight is dealing with a... a a menagerie of different Christian groups, almost like a cornmeal mix of uh, different Christian so-called denominations that go by different names. And the various names that they go by, uh, we'll get into that shortly. But first of all, I want to introduce my very special guest and my partner in this ministry, Steve Morrison, our Director of Research for Christian Answers of Austin, Texas. Steve, thanks for being with us. All right. Well, thank you very much. For, I'm glad to be here. Yeah, now, you know, you and me have been doing television together since way back, let's see, uh, this year, closing in on almost 30 years. Now, it's hard to believe, you know, because the first shows we did used to have a lot of hair. So, <laughs> Uh, we're debating those Moonies, uh, the Unification Church, and what uh, people can check our YouTube channel. Right now, at the time of this uh, recording, uh, we have over 720 videos that we've produced over these last three decades. And I think of all those shows we've done together, this is the first time we've done a show together where we weren't in our suits. <laughs> Usually had our suits and ties and all that kind of stuff, but uh, now with this modern technology, uh, I feel like it's very helpful that you don't have to drive, uh, you know, a couple of hundred miles to get here <laughs> to do the do the things, and this will give us an opportunity to do uh, more shows on a more frequent basis without having to burn a lot of gas and things like that to do things together. So it's an exciting opportunity with the new technology that we have. Uh, 
so, basically, for our viewers at home, uh, Steve is our webmaster. He has done amazing work you know, on our three websites that he runs. Uh, in fact, uh, Steve's better qualified to talk about those three websites. I, Steve, just take a moment to talk about the three websites uh, you, you run for the ministry, Christian Answers, and uh, tell, our, tell our viewers... A little bit about a little bit about each of those websites. All right. We well, begin. the first one, BibleQuery.org, um, answers questions about the Bible, and it's something like um, 8,800 questions so uh, so far, plus additional information on different religious groups, on um, uh, different Christian doctrines and practices and uh, a lot there on church history, especially uh, focusing on, on early uh, church history prior to Nicaea. The second website, muslimhope.com, and it's for the great hope that Muslims have when they leave Islam and find the real Jesus. And it is spelled M-U-S-L-I-M-H-O-P-E.com. And I've read through the Quran, cover to cover twice, read through all the Hadiths, and have a lot of notes about the things that they say that are surprising, probably even to a lot of Muslims. Um, and uh, there's a lot of stuff on there answering questions Muslims have about the Bible, uh, raising questions that either Muslims would ask or maybe they ought to be asking about the Quran and about Muhammad, and, and looking at that. And then the third website is historycart.com, uh, is, is, is more of just a... Um, uh, focus on history, and it's like rather than preach the gospel on this site, uh, I have a lot of the early church fathers because they were pretty good preaching the gospel themselves, and so especially focus on early church history and, and some stuff on, on, on uh, the Muslim Hadith too, but more of a historical perspective. Outstanding, and you've also written four books dealing with uh, Islam, and uh, we've pointed that out in some of our previous programs, but what's particularly impressive uh, to me as just a Christian apologist is the work you've done in church history, which particularly pertains back to that last website that you mentioned, historycart.com. Uh, all that, in that 18-part video series uh, that we did together on early church history, particularly before uh, Nicaea, 325 AD, what was going on there. And as we discuss uh, this menagerie of different Christian groups, uh, as you're going to be discussing in this particular presentation, uh, church history plays into some of these, where these groups came from and things like that. Uh, so with that said, I would like you to uh, begin the presentation you prepared for our viewers tonight on this uh, on these various groups that uh, many people out there that watch our channel. And as a matter of fact, it's interesting that uh, at the time that we're recording this, we just went over 19,000 subscribers on YouTube, which is kind of exciting that, you know, uh, to think that there's actually that many people out there that care about what we're doing over here. And, and uh, so... If it can be helpful to them, that's what we're here for, to help the Christian community deal with all the situations and different religions and groups that are out there that uh, oppose Christianity or just tr truth seekers that want to 
actually find out more and learn more about what the Word of God says in relationship to some of these groups that you're about to mention. So go ahead, Steve, and uh, let our viewers now know about uh, what you prepared for us tonight. Okay. Well, uh, most people, probably most of our viewers, um, they are familiar with Protestantism or Evangelicalism, and they're also familiar with uh, Roman Catholicism. And many people, I almost get the idea that those are the only two things that they know about. And everyone who claims to be a Christian is, is either one or the other. And actually, that's far from, very far from true. Uh, you could classify um, either Christians or people who call themselves Christians in pretty much eight different groups. And, um, and, 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 a reason is, and, and so the point of this video is to tell people about these groups. Um, also, uh, maybe some good points and some bad points about, uh, uh, about some of them. And then to see what they have in common and to see what their, what their differences are. And we try to be, you know, a, a, a unbiased and objective about this, but we will say up front that both of us are evangelicals. Um, so they're, you know, you know, unintentionally or whatever, you know, it may be somewhat of, a, of an evangelical perspective, but we try to give, uh, I guess, fairness to all the different groups. Um, and another thing about it is that so there are other Christians that might disagree with us on secondary matters, but they're still genuine brothers and sisters in the Lord. And despite the fact we don't agree on everything, we can still accept, accept them. And there are others that, like, they are different. They are, it's like they don't have the same God, and they don't, it's not really the same religion at all. And the Bible kind of says things that we kind of have to strike a balance with. For example, Ephesians 4, 3 through 4, says, Preserve the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. There is one body and one Spirit, just as also you were called to one hope of your calling. Okay, on, so on one hand, we are to preserve peace with other Christians. Not just ones we agree with on everything, but all other kinds of Christians. However, First uh, Timothy three one through five uh, warns us that in the last days difficult times will come, for men will be lovers of self, lovers of money, boastful, arrogant, revilers, disobedient to parents, and dot dot dot, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God, holding to a form of godliness, and though they have denied its power, and avoid such men as these. So we are not to have unity with these kind of people. We are to um, be separate from these kind of people because they may have the same name, Christian, but they are not the same at all. So let's see what churches are out there, what are the different beliefs, and what should we preserve unity with and, and, and avoid. And there are about 580 million uh, people in the world who are neither evangelical nor are they Roman Catholic. So let's kind of just look at some of the groups. Uh, the first group are called Copts, C-O-P-T-S, or Coptic Christians, and there are about 84 million of them. And they are mainly in Egypt, though there are some in Sudan and a few in Libya. The second group is there are about 200 million, pretty large group there, of Orthodox. Now, there are different kinds of Orthodox churches, Greek Orthodox, Russian Orthodox, Serbian Orthodox, Georgian Orthodox, Bulgarian Orthodox, a whole bunch of Orthodox. There's even a very, very small Japanese Orthodox. Um, and they mainly are, are uh, differ just on the language spoken in, in the service. They don't really have too many differences uh, beside that. Uh, the other group that are in cornmeal uh, is Roman Catholic. 
And there are about uh, 1.29 billion Roman Catholics, including 55 million in the U.S. So this means that there are actually a lot more Roman Catholics outside the U.S. than in the U.S. Okay. Another group is Nestorians. There are only about 800,000 of them around today, but they were fairly important, um, historically speaking, and we'll see what happened to them. The other I kind of lumped together. I call them multigrain groups. You know, multigrain bread is nuts and various kinds of things in it. Well, these have various kinds of things in them, too. And about 20 million are Seventh-day Adventists, a fairly large group. And then about 16 million Mormons and 8.3 million Jehovah's Witnesses. And then there are about 2.7 million of others, uh, including uh, Moonies, Christian Science. And then there are about 25 million uh, or, or so. You include Oneness Pentecostals. Um, and then uh, after that, you have Evangelicals. Now, you have evangelicals who are Protestant. Not all Protestants are evangelicals, and there are about 600 million of them. But not all evangelicals are Protestants. Okay, there are, are charismatics. There are even charismatic Catholic evangelicals, which is kind of hard to classify uh, in, in my simple system. Uh, there are about maybe 40 million Anglicans around the world who are like evangelicals, and technically speaking, Anglicans and Episcopalians aren't actually Protestant. And then there are other things like uh, Mennonites that you don't, they're fairly small, you don't hear too much of. And then there are anti-Niacene Christians, anti not being against, but anti, A-N-T-E, meaning before, so before Nicaea. And of course, by definition, they're not around today. But at the very end of this presentation, we're going to compare each of these groups to the early Christians and see how similar they were and different and attempt to answer the question, well, which group is closest? And then finally, there are about 245 million that are liberal Protestant, or actually about 200 million liberal Protestant and 45 million Anglican or Episcopalians who are liberal. And these are not Roman Catholics, they're not Orthodox. Uh, most of them are Protestant, but they are not following the Bible and they're not at all evangelical. And so if you tell somebody, you know, get involved in a church, well, I'm not sure that's good advice. Um, you should tell them, get involved in a good Bible-believing church, just not any old church, because there are a lot of different churches out there, and I'm going to give you just a, a, a kind of scratch the surface of a little bit of, of each of these main eight kinds. Okay, so the cornmeal is just basically a, a, a mnemonic to uh, kind of have a more digestible form. Uh, of these classifications, and some of these are, are wholesome, some are rotten, and some are, well, they aren't horrible, but they're just kind of like uh, junk food. And, and, and some, like Anglicans, are kind of split between evangelicals and liberals. Uh, some Seventh-day Adventists, they're also kind of a split, too. Um, and so it's kind of hard, and, and I just have to confess, there are uh, an estimated 90 million uh, evangelical Catholics, which are both Roman Catholics, Catholicism and, and evangelicals, but I just lumped them with the Roman Catholics for the time being because it's kind of hard to do both. All right, so, so first, next we're going to just talk about each of these groups, and then we're going to, like, compare and contrast. So the first group, most people in the West don't know about, but the Copts. There are about 85 million Copts. They live mainly in Egypt. Uh, there are a few in North America um, in the... Uh, in, in Texas, there's a Coptic church, for example. Uh, there's also little cops in Eritrea and Syria and things like that. Now, the, the, go back to church history here. The cops were essentially kicked out of the Orthodox Christian church 
in 451 uh, AD, and they were at the Council of, of uh, Chalcedon, and they were persecuted by the Orthodox. One thing I'd like to add here is, and you can see it there on your screen, members of the Coptic Christian Church believe both God and man play roles in salvation. God through the sacrificial death of Jesus Christ and humans through works of merit, such as fasting, almsgiving, and receiving the sacraments. Founded in the first century in Egypt, the Coptic Christian Church shares many beliefs and practices with the Roman Catholic Church and Eastern Orthodox Church. Coptic is derived from a Greek term meaning Egyptian. The Coptic Orthodox Church claims apostolic succession through John Mark, author of the Gospel of Mark. Cops believe Mark was one of the 72 sent by Christ to evangelize. That's from Luke chapter 10, verse 1. However, cops split from the Catholic Church in 451 AD and have their own pope and bishops. The church is steeped in ritual and tradition and places a heavy emphasis on asceticism or denying the self. Coptic Christian beliefs. Baptism. Baptism is performed by immersing the baby three times in sanctified water. The sacrament also includes a liturgy of prayer and anointing with oil. Under Levitical law, the mother waits 40 days after the birth of a male child and 80 days after the birth of a female child to have the baby baptized. In the case of adult baptism, the person undresses, enters the baptismal font up to their neck, and their head is dipped three times by the priest. The priest stands behind a curtain while immersing the head of a woman. Confession. Cops believe verbal confession to a priest is necessary for forgiveness of sins. Embarrassment during confession is considered part of the penalty for sin. In confession, the priest is considered a father, judge, and a teacher. Communion. The Eucharist is called the, quote, crown of sacraments, end quote. Bread and wine are sanctified by the priest during the Mass. Recipients must fast nine hours before communion. Married couples are not to have sexual relations on the eve or day of communion, and menstruating women may not receive communion. Trinity. Cops hold a monotheistic belief in the Trinity. Three persons and one God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is the Spirit of God, the life giver. God lives by His own Spirit and had no other source. Jesus Christ. Christ is the manifestation of God, the living Word sent by the Father as a sacrifice for humanity's sins. The Bible. The Coptic Christian Church considers the Bible, quote, an encounter with God and an interaction with Him in a spirit of worship and piety, end quote. Creed. Athanasius, 296 to 373 A.D. A Coptic bishop in Alexandria, Egypt, was a staunch opponent of Arianism. The Athanasian Creed, an early statement of faith, is attributed to him. Saints and icons. Cops venerate, that's worship, but they say they are not worshiping. Saints and icons, which are images of saints and Christ painted on wood. The Coptic Christian Church teaches that saints act as intercessors for the prayers of the faithful. Salvation. 
Coptic Christians teach that both God and man have roles in human salvation. God, through Christ's atoning death and resurrection, man through good works, which are the fruits of faith, which in this case would violate Ephesians 2, 8 through 10, which clearly says it's not of works, lest any man should boast. It's by the grace of God. But they say that man, through their good works, has a role in their salvation. Okay, Coptic Christian practices. Sacraments. Cops practice seven sacraments. Baptism, confirmation, confession, penance, the Eucharist, communion, matrimony, unction of the sick, and ordination. Sacraments are considered a way to receive God's grace, the guidance of the Holy Spirit, and remission of sins. Fasting. Fasting plays a key role in Coptic Christianity. Taught as, quote, an offering of inward love offered by the heart as well as the body, end quote. Abstaining from food is equated with abstaining from selfishness. Fasting means contrition and repentance mixed with spiritual joy and consolation. Worship service. Coptic Orthodox churches celebrate the Mass, which includes traditional liturgical prayers from a lectionary, readings from the Bible, singing or chanting, almsgiving, a sermon, consecration of the bread and wine, and communion. The order of service has changed little since the first century. Services are usually held in the local language. Cops are really nothing more than the works righteousness for salvation religious brothers of Roman Catholics and Eastern Orthodoxy, meaning they are following the same type of false gospel as described in Galatians chapter 1, verses 6 through 9. Quote, I marvel that you are so soon removed from him that called you into the grace of Christ unto another gospel, which is not another, but there be some that trouble you and will pervert the gospel of Christ. But though we or an angel from heaven preach any other gospel unto you, than that which we have preached unto you, let him be accursed. As we said before, so say I now again, if any man preach any other gospel unto you, than that ye have received, let him be accursed. End quote. To give you a little rundown on theology, okay, Christians believe um, that Jesus was 100% man, fully man, fully human, except, of course, without sin, and he was fully God. It wasn't like semi-human or part-human. He was fully human. He wasn't semi-God or a lesser God or a separate God, but he was fully divine. He was, he was fully God. Okay? And uh, so they believe he is all. Now, uh, cops, and almost like their arch nemesis and historians, they all believe identical on that. Okay? But the difference is, what about Jesus' human nature and his divine nature? Are they distinct? Or are they merged all together? And the cops, uh, well, Orthodox Christians would say that they are distinct. They're not all mixed together, and we don't understand how. This is a mystery, but the Bible just teaches both, and kind of leave it at that. But the cops, uh, originally the monophysites, which is uh, the cops are monophysites, they say it was like uh, they were mixed, sort of like if you put a teaspoonful of tea in the ocean, they're mixed together, but... Does it really look more like tea or really look more like ocean? So if you put the teaspoon of Christ's uh, humanity in the ocean of his divinity, they're kind of mixed together. And this is kind of problematic because um, does that mean that Christ, because he's divine, didn't really feel the suffering? Or that Christ just kind of, you know, uh, glided through life without any, any problems? 
And so they were they were kicked out of the church with that, and it was kind of an uh, ugly situation. Uh, later on, there were, much later on, there was a group of cops. They were called not monophysites, but myophysites. Now, and, and the Coptic church today is pretty much myophysite. And what that means is they say, well, the, the, the divine and human parts of Christ, they are merged together, but they still have separate compartments. Now, that might sound to you like they're splitting hairs, but basically kind of what that does is it gives them continuity with the original Coptic church, so they say that, you know, they're not um, rejecting that, but when they say they're separate compartments, that kind of makes them a lot like Christians, and as a matter of fact, the Roman Catholic Church and Coptic Church had a partial reconciliation in 2017, and they, so they recognize each other's baptisms, but they still don't take the Lord's Supper together. So, uh, cops could be genuine believers, as they're myophysite, it's like, well, they may have, in our opinion as evangelicals, uh, some unfortunate way of saying things, but with the myophysites, it's like, um, you know, they're maybe not too far off about something that in the Bible that fundamentally is a mystery anyway. Okay? Um, in the Coptic Church, uh, they use leavened bread in the Lord's Supper. They allow children to partake the Lord's Supper, and they all partake from the same loaf of bread. So just kind of just some cultural thing. Um, anybody know who the first uh, pope was? And this will be a surprise to people. All right. Um, nobody was called a pope until Heraclius of Alexandria. And he was the pope in Alexandria. He was never in Rome. And this was about 232 to 249 A.D. where he was called a pope, kind of like head of the other bishops. Okay. And the, nobody in Rome was called a pope. This was the first idea. Okay. Um, also, in the Coptic Bible, uh, if you think about it, the New Testament is uh, the same you know, for uh, these different groups. The Old Testament, the uh, Jews, uh, what they call the Tanakh, the Old Testament, is the same Old Testament that Protestants have. And Copts and Roman Catholics and Orthodox and everybody else has the same Old Testament as Protestants. Um, plus, they have some extra books. Now, here's where it gets complicated. The Copts had 1st and 2nd and 3rd Maccabees, Baruch, Ecclesiasticus, also called Sirach, Tobit, Wisdom of Solomon, Judith, and additions to Daniel and Esther. However, under Cyril V in 1874 to 1927, they rejected these extra books. So uh, they sound kind of interesting. Also, in some in Coptic churches, they might have Awanus. Uh, which evangelicals know and love as a, a fine organization for teaching the Bible to young people. Okay, So that's kind of it for the cops. And I thought it was interesting that you mentioned, uh, just to reiterate, uh, about the Pope. So just to, in case anyone missed it out there, you're, the cops basically are, would deny the apostolic succession of the popes of the See of Rome. Uh, going back to Peter, as the Roman Catholics claim, they basically are arguing, and as you stated in the church history thing from Heraclitus, that he was the first pope before the Roman Catholics ever had any claim to any pope, according to early church history. The first person to be called a pope was Heraclius of Alexandria, 236 to 249 A.D., the cops traced their popes from him, not Roman Catholics. 
The first Roman bishop to call himself a pope was Sericius, circa 384 to 399 A.D., after Nicaea. Athanasius, born circa 296 or possibly 298, died 373 A.D., was called a pope, and he called the Roman bishop a pope prior to Sericius. So the cops have prior claim to a pope, not Roman Catholics. A Roman Catholic today cannot consider the cops as non-Christians, since the Roman Catholic Church in more recent times has restored communion with the Coptic Church. Furthermore, the Greek Orthodox Church, also known as Eastern Orthodoxy, which Orthodox people would argue goes back farther than the Roman Catholic Church, never needed a Pope. And you can get your reference from this off our website at www.historycart.com. We, we actually document a lot of that in that 18-part series you and I did uh, that's there on YouTube on our playlist on early church history. So anyone that wants to go into that uh, are welcome to do it. And, of course, your website, uh, historycart.com, also gets into some of this stuff, too. So anyway, I just wanted to bring that information in there to since you're now getting ready to move on to another group here. So go ahead, brother. Well, one last thing, the cops still have a pope today, um, and the, the Coptic popes don't really um, come up with uh, brand new doctrines or send uh, people off to war or anything like that. Uh, they, they're, they're pretty much role is just kind of to preserve, you know, what, what they're already teaching, uh, more or less. Now, that makes it interesting because if you're saying you've got a pope, you're basically denying a Roman Catholic pope, uh, but that almost suggests a similarity in overall doctrine. In other words, if the Roman Catholics have a pope and the cops have a pope, maybe they have similar things like maybe water baptism for salvation, the sacraments, things that are typical in Roman Catholicism you might also find in the Coptic religion. Is that correct? There are similarities, and, and actually the cops don't necessarily deny um, the, 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 the Roman Pope, they just say they're more than one Pope. So the, so the Roman Catholic Pope has visited Egypt before, and the two Popes have met and talked, and uh, as I said before, they do have a degree of communion between the two churches. So, 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 so right now they aren't necessarily anti-Catholic, but they are different. They've had Popes before there was any Pope in Rome. So if someone talks about the Pope today, you should ask them, well, which one do you mean? <laughs> <laughs> well, it's sort of like at the time we're recording this, this video, uh, there's actually in the Roman, Roman Catholic Church, they've got two living popes right now. <laughs> they've got uh, Pope Francis and the other guy that's still alive, uh, Pope Benedict. Uh, although he kind of, you know, I forgot the term they used for it, but he sort of retired while he's still alive. Usually they just die and they replace him. Well, new, this it certainly isn't the first time, and we'll get into exactly. that a lot more. Exactly. Um, okay, least, go least, ahead. These folks like each other. What about the ones that uh, hated each other? We'll get into that in a little bit. All right, so anyway, in, in our in our mnemonic cornmeal, all right, that's the cops. So we'll move on to the next one, Orthodox, also called Eastern Orthodox. Some people call it Greek Orthodox. That's not really that good a term because you have, you know, Albanian Orthodox, a Bulgarian Orthodox, Russian Orthodox. You got lots and lots of Orthodox, and they're very similar to each other. There are actually about 17 different Orthodox churches. Okay, 
Now, uh, in the Roman Catholic Church, uh, you know, we think of all the, the pictures and all the statues and everything. Well, the Orthodox Church is different. They have even more pictures than the Roman Catholic Church. It, it's even more prominent there. However, in the Orthodox Church, they don't really have statues. But, but lots and lots of pictures, which they call icons. In fact, that was, that was part of the reason they had a schism. Uh, they were arguing about statues and icons. And the one liked the statues and the other one liked the icons. Uh, as part of, that was one of the reasons they were fighting. One reason that wasn't stated was who has the power. Was the Pope in Rome over everybody or not? I, I think that was the real reason. But, but a second reason, which was a stated reason, what uh, what was uh, did they say was was the Holy Spirit sent from the Father or was the Holy Spirit sent by the Father and Jesus? Yes, that was part of it. You're right. Seems like well, the Bible kind of shows you, you know you can say it either way, but I think that that was kind of magnified to cover the real reason, which I think was um, you know does the Roman Church have power over all other churches or not? And the, and the Orthodox Church would say no. Uh, but, but anyway, even, even though the, the Orthodox Church was real big on icons, there is a brief period in, the, in their history where they weren't. And this was under Emperor Leo I, who's been called the iconoclast, like destroyer of icons. He, he reigned from 754 to 787 AD. And after he died, uh, everything kind of went back to the way it was. Okay. Now, curiously, what are these icons of? Okay, well, they are, they are icons of, of, of various saints and prophets and things like that. What about icons about God? All right, well, the Greek Orthodox has fairly consistently said you shouldn't have any graven image of God. And in other videos, we'll get into the arguments pro and con. The Russian Orthodox Church differs from the Greek Orthodox Church. Their main difference is, well, one of two main differences on this point. They do have icons of the Father as well as the Son and Holy Spirit. While the Greek Orthodox, they have uh, icons of Jesus, but they don't have icons of the Holy Spirit or the Father. Okay? Um, and we'll get into later what these icons of Jesus look like at various points in history and why. Um, all right. So the Orthodox, unfortunately, um, they persecuted Jews in 628 A.D., and they persecuted cops from 527 to 568 A.D. and 572 A.D. Uh, besides that, though, um, they weren't into persecution, persecuting others that much. And that's in contrast to the next group we're going to talk about, the Roman Catholics. Uh, big contrast there. Okay, the, you have the Pope in the uh, Roman Catholic Church, in the Orthodox Church, you have the Patriarch. Okay, it's, uh, they're, they're both the top guy in their group, but they look at them kind of different. A Patriarch is kind of more like a governor, while the Pope might be more similar to an emperor. For example, the Greek Orthodox Church would, would freely admit that a Patriarch could be a heretic, while, while the Roman Catholics are very big on papal succession, um, the Greek Orthodox, you don't hear as much about patriarch succession. For example, Nestorius, who is considered a heretic, he was the patriarch of the Orthodox Church for, for a while before he was kicked out at the Council of Ephesus in 431 AD. So they aren't as um, 
that their top leader doesn't have such a strong role in, in, in Greek Orthodox as as Roman Catholic, and then other Orthodox churches, their language, they would have a patriarch too, but again, he would not have a strong role as the Roman Pope. They don't believe in uh, original sin, uh, so they don't hold to the Roman Catholic doctrine of Mary's Immaculate Conception. Okay, They celebrate Christmas in January. Now, actually, we don't know um, the day that Christ was born, so celebrating December is okay, and you know, biblically, and celebrating in January is okay. You know, you, I'm not criticizing for that, just pointing out kind of a cultural difference. Uh, priests uh, can be celibate their whole lives, or they can be married, but they can only be married once. And I say, you know, the Bible doesn't forbid uh, priests from marrying, and so if a priest wants to, you know, want to, someone married wants to be a priest, um, you know, Orthodox Church looks in their Bible and says, okay, you know. And the Orthodox Church, though, unlike the it's not really emphasized in the Roman Catholics. They believe in this um, doctrine called theosis, or deification of a person. So they believe that a person on earth can share in God's divinity, and they can even join the Godhead and become free from sin in this life. Okay, so that's kind of different. Uh, Roman Catholic Church doesn't, you don't really hear that from them, and certainly don't hear that from evangelicals, but the Orthodox churches. Uh, teach that. That is a big difference. Okay. Uh, in the Lord's Supper, they use leavened bread, like the cops. They allow children to partake. And then uh, babies are, you know, usually in Roman Catholic churches, babies are sprinkled, as well as in many Presbyterian and Lutheran and Methodist, while in many other churches, you know, we, we are dipped, uh, we are immersed as believers. Well, um, Orthodox Church is a little different. They immerse infants. Okay. Um, Russian Orthodox Church, um, they really value baptism, and sometimes they do sprinkling of baptism. In fact, sometimes they sprinkle cars to baptize cars to bless the cars. Uh, now, you know they do sprinkling because baptizing cars and immersion don't go too well together. Uh, so they're practical there. All right? So, um, also known as a car wash. So we can go into a lot more on, on Eastern Orthodox, and we will. Uh, but I was just going to kind of stop there for, you know, just, just to give you a little thumbnail sketch of that. Okay, because uh, Eastern Orthodox, that, uh, that has sometimes been known as uh, the twin sister of Roman Catholicism, but with the exclusion of the things that you mentioned, the, the exceptions to the things you've already mentioned here. Somebody wrote in and asked a question about what are the main differences between Eastern Orthodoxy and Roman Catholicism? And here was my response on YouTube to that question. The Eastern Orthodox Church is not a single church, but rather a family of 13 self-governing bodies denominated by the nation in which they are located, e.g. the Greek Orthodox Church, Russian Orthodox Church, and so forth, whatever the country they are. That's what they're basically, if it's in Bulgaria, it'd be the Bulgarian Orthodox Church. They are united in their understanding of the sacraments, doctrine, liturgy, and church government, but each administers its own affairs. The head of each Orthodox Church is called a patriarch or metropolitan. The patriarch of Constantinople, which is now Istanbul, Turkey, is considered the ecumenical or universal patriarch. 
He is the closest thing to a counterpart to the Pope in the Roman Catholic Church. Unlike the Pope, who is known as Vicarious Filius Dei, meaning the Vicar of the Son of God, the Bishop of Constantinople is known as Primus Inter Paris, meaning the first among equals. He enjoys special honor, but he has no power to interfere with the 12 other Orthodox communions. Eastern Orthodoxy is very similar to Roman Catholicism in denying clear biblical doctrines and replacing them with heretical doctrines instead. 1. Claiming to be the one true Church of Christ going back 2,000 years while all others are not, despite historical facts proving this to be false. 2. The denial of justification by faith alone, which then is replaced with a works-righteousness system of church-related sacraments. 3. The equal authority of church traditions and scripture. So they put their traditions on the same plane as the Word of God. Point 4. Discouragement of individuals interpreting the Bible apart from Greek Orthodox or Eastern Orthodox tradition. Point 5. The perpetual virginity of Mary. 6. Prayer for the dead. 7. The possibility of receiving salvation after death. The Roman Catholic Church and the Eastern Orthodox Church has been in a state of official schism from one another since the East-West Schism of 1054. The schism was caused by historical and linguistic developments and the ensuing theological differences between the Western and Eastern churches. Main points of discontent between Eastern Orthodoxy and the Catholic Church are the Papal Primacy and the Felique Clause. The Felique is a Latin term added to the original Niceo-Constantinopolitan Creed, commonly known as the Nicene Creed, and which has been the subject of great controversy between Eastern and Western Christianity. The Latin term Felique describes the Holy Spirit as proceeding from both the Father and the Son, and not from the Father only. In the Nicene Creed, it is translated by the English phrase, and from the Son. I believe in the Holy Ghost, the Lord, the giver of life, who proceeded from the Father and the Son, who with the Father and the Son is adorned and glorified. For Eastern Orthodox, the main point of discontent is voiced by Neopalamism which sees the essence-energy distinction and the experiential vision of God as attained in Theoria and Theosis as the main point of divergence between East and West. Orthodoxy emphasizes Theosis, literally divinization, the gradual process by which Christians become more and more like Christ. What many in the Orthodox tradition fail to understand Divinization is the progressive result of salvation, not a requirement for salvation itself. The following is a list of Eastern Orthodox theological distinctives. 1. The Church. Eastern Orthodoxy sees itself as the Church, one holy, Catholic, and apostolic, which alone has faithfully maintained Christ's truth through unbroken continuity with the Apostles. Point two, apostolic tradition. That tradition to which the church is called as guardian 
is made up of the Bible, true councils, the church fathers, liturgy, canon law, and icons. So all these things have been raised to the same importance as the Word of God. Three, the triune God, Eastern Orthodoxy, views the Trinity as the essence of their faith. Quote, the Catholic truth above all other. End quote. That's why they have a lot of icons of the Trinity. Four, creation and the fall. Though God created man with free will and rationality, Adam stood in a state of undeveloped simplicity. When he fell, he fell, quote, not from a great height of knowledge and perfection. Hence, he is not to be judged too harshly for his error, end quote. The deteriorating effects of Adam's sin, that's death and disease, extended to his descendants, but his guilt did not. Five, salvation and sacrament. Once Adam initiated the deterioration of human nature, God desired to reverse the process by means of Christ's incarnation. Quote, God descends to the world and becomes man, and man is raised to divine fullness and becomes God. End quote. Thus they describe salvation as deification or theosis, the process of becoming metaphysically united with God's divine energies. Quote, we remain creatures while becoming God by grace, as Christ remained God in becoming man by incarnation. End quote. Six, Eastern Orthodoxy loudly repudiates Plato only to embrace Platonius, whose Neoplatonic system has been openly cultivated into every aspect of Eastern Orthodox theology, from God's degrees of being to human deification. Such obvious paganism flies in the face of the first commandment. See also Colossians chapter 2, verse 8. Point 7. Subjugation of Scripture. Christ reserves some of his most heated denunciations for that ecclesiastical body which subjugated God's revelation to human tradition. Eastern Orthodoxy attempts to evade this charge by claiming to preserve only divine tradition. But the Pharisees made the same claim. Those who attempt to suppress God's covenantal word invite on themselves the curses of the covenant. Eight. Church as emperor, with God's written revelation suppressed due to its obscurity, the ecclesiastics took over the supreme position. Once the church leaders rule over God's word, then this church organization ceases to be Christ's church. 9. Salvation without the cross. Since deification is grounded in the incarnation rather than the atonement, Christ's cross becomes, in principle, non-essential, a quaint sideshow in deification. Discussions of substitutionary atonement and propitiation are virtually absent from their published explanations of salvation. Point 10. Glorification by human discipline. Eastern Orthodoxy attempts to evade the charge of self-salvation by appealing to the foundational grace shown in the Incarnation. Rome speaks of merit, and the East, that's Eastern Orthodoxy, speaks of acquisition, but both substitute human effort for Christ's effort. Point 11. Arrogant worship. 
Eastern Orthodoxy shows no concern for conforming any aspect of its worship to the requisites of the Lord. They rejoice in imitating the inferior worship of the old covenant temple and shallowly overturn the ancient prohibition on venerating images with their statues, icons, and sacrifices. Both Eastern Orthodoxy and Roman Catholicism fall under the curse of Galatians chapter 1, verses 6 through 9, since both clearly have a different gospel than the one the Bible teaches. We currently have two videos available at the time of this recording on Eastern Orthodoxy called Eastern Orthodoxy, Salvation by Earned Works, Icons, Tradition, Deification, and the Virgin Mary, and the link is there, and the other video called Eastern Orthodoxy, Spiritual Death or Spiritual Life, Twin Sister of Roman Catholicism and Dead Works, at that particular link listed there. We also have 171 videos concerning Roman Catholicism on our playlist on the link listed there. You can usually find that link on virtually any of our videos on Roman Catholicism uh, by just going to any of those, those videos and looking down in the description text of any one of them and find the, the playlist link if you needed to find it that way. And of course, remember 2 Timothy chapter 4, verses 2 through 5. Well, go ahead, go ahead with your analysis. All right, so discussing cornmeal, we discussed the, the Copts for C, the Orthodox for O, and then R is Roman Catholicism. Now, Catholic, by the way, means universal. And you say, so do you believe in the universal church? Well, yeah, you believe the Catholic church. Mm, depends what you mean by that. Universal church, yes. Roman Catholic church, well, that's different. All right, well, anyway, there are about 1.29 billion Roman Catholics worldwide, about 5 million in the U.S., um, uh, Strange statistic, about one in five Americans are ex-Catholic. So people leaving the Roman Catholic Church is not uncommon, and I think there's been a lot recently because of the prior scandals, you know, with the priests abusing little boys and, and, and things like that. Okay, now going back in history, who was the first person who was called a pope, and who was the first person who called himself a pope? Well, no one was called a pope until Julius of Rome in 347 A.D., okay? And actually, Athanasius was, at the same time, he was called a pope in Alexandria. Athanasius in Alexandria and Julius in Rome. Sericius in 384 to 399 A.D., he was the first to call himself a pope. Okay, but before then, they didn't have this idea of pope. That's kind of a post-Nicene invention. All right. Anyway, why would people think that the popes came from Peter, and they uh, were all successors of Peter. Well, they had the documents to prove it, beyond a shadow of a doubt. From 847 to 859 AD, there were these documents that here that proved Peter and his successors were the head of all of the churches. Um, these are called the false decretals. And by 1100 AD, uh, they were proven to be forgeries. And so even Roman Catholic scholars today, they will admit the decretals are forgeries, all right? But they were very instrumental in their time to get everybody under the Pope and consolidate his power. And so that a lot of that was based upon a, a huge lie. It's almost like it hijacked the church elite. Now, the Eastern Orthodox, for whatever reason, um, they never really bought into that lie. But at least in Western Europe, 
it like hijacked the church. Uh, as a matter of fact, there was a synod in England in Whitby where you had these uh, Christians uh, from the time of Patrick of Ireland in 450 AD um, who were spreading the gospel and sharing. And you know that the monastery in Salzburg, uh, you know, Mozart's fame, that was first founded by missionaries from where? From Ireland. And anyway, the Irish missionaries were saying that uh, Easter should be celebrated one day, and the ones from Rome were, were said to be another day. And so they called a synod in Whitby to peacefully iron out their differences. And it was finally decided you had to go with Rome because if Peter had the keys to heaven, you don't want to be on Peter's bad side. So um, the, 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 the Irish all went with the Roman way because it was proven to them. And they had the proof. They had these pieces of paper. They're false decretals. <clears throat> so while that's not a, really an a issue today, um, that was a big deal. In, in, in that time, okay? The Roman Catholic Church, and sorry to bore you with dates here, but I just want to make a point here. They persecuted Jews in the West in 554 AD, 561 AD, 582 AD, 628 AD, 638 AD, 646 AD, 847 AD, 1096 AD, 1121 AD. Um, I'll keep going, but uh, I will put it in the paper. You kind of get the idea here. They were violent guys. As far as papal succession goes, let's see what happened. There was a synod, and it's called the Cadaver Synod. Cadaver meaning a dead person. This is where Pope Formosus, the Pope of Rome, that is, he was dug up from his grave, and he was tried and convicted of heresy. This happened in 897 A.D. So much for papal succession when the guy before you, you yourself convicted as a heretic. Larry, earlier you were talking about the Great Schism between the Catholic and Orthodox. Well, the Great Schism that kind of happened permanently was in 1054 A.D. when the Roman Catholic and Orthodox churches mutually excommunicated each other. All Catholic churches in Orthodox lands were closed down by the Orthodox. Any Orthodox churches in Catholic lands were, were closed down too. Both sides repealed this in 1964, which wasn't that long ago. <laughs> Okay, the Roman Catholic Church launched eight crusades from 1189 to 1272 to capture Israel, but one crusade was to capture Constantinople and allow the relics and church treasures in the church in Hagia Sophia in Constantinople all were stolen, robbed essentially, and taken back to Rome. And that was a crusade for God to do this, which is kind of hard to explain. That's interesting you mentioned that because uh, here you've got a Roman Catholic army going over there in a crusade and they attack the Eastern Orthodox city of Constantinople. And because of that attack, I mean military action, we're talking death and violence, uh, that severely weakened Constantinople. And that allowed the Muslims to come along later and actually take the city because they were so weakened already from their war with the supposed Christian army that came over there, they had to fight them off. And then the Muslims come later and then take over the place because they've already been weakened from a previous war with the Crusaders. So anyway, I just thought I'd throw that in. But right before the Muslims took over, though, the, the people in Constantinople, they appealed to Rome and to the West and said, send an army and come save us from the Muslims. And the answer they got was, Okay, we will come if you submit to the Pope. And the people of Constantinople, or the leaders, said, well, it would be better to submit to the Muslims than to the Pope. 
And so uh, the army never came. Never came. The Muslims took over Constantinople, and it's now known to this day as Istanbul. Right. And, uh, but all that... And, and afterwards, the Muslims kept advancing, and they went all the way up to Vienna, Austria, where they, which they besieged. And then uh, the people of Europe, both Roman Catholics and Protestants, um, had, a, had a temporary peace and combined army and drove the Muslims back. Um, so, you know, it, it's like it caused a lot of trouble for the rest of Europe, you know, when, when, because Constantinople was kind of like a bulwark, stopping the Muslims from going to the rest of Europe. There was another crusade. Beside those nine crusades, there's another one from 1487 to 1545. This is a little bit later one. This was against the Waldenses. Now, the Waldenses were these Christians who lived primarily in rural areas in northern Italy, in the mountains, and in uh, France, uh, southern France, and in northeast Spain. And the Waldenses were started by a guy named Waldo, as in, you know, where's Waldo or whatever. Um, but, but the Waldenses, they looked through the Bible, and they were confused. They could not find purgatory for the life of them anywhere in the Bible. They couldn't find transubstantiation. They couldn't find a whole lot of stuff that the Roman Catholic Church said was true. And so what the Waldenses thought is they thought, we're not going to raise a big fuss about this. We're just going to have our own priests, and we're just going to worship ourselves, and we're just going to follow what the Bible says. Now, they were uh, a little bit reactionary. They only celebrated uh, the Lord's Supper twice a year because they didn't want people to start worshiping the bread or anything like that. But anyway, uh, because they said, we just want to follow the Bible and just worship God in simplicity, the Roman Catholic Church... Um, uh, the, the Pope issued a bull, uh, which is an official pronouncement from the papal chair, to wipe them out, to commit genocide against the Waldenses, and they sent armies to try to wipe them out. Now, the Waldenses suffered from that, but because they were on mountains and rural areas, they were hard to hunt down all of them, so they did survive. Uh, they survived until the time of the Reformation, when there was a big meeting between them and, uh, and, and some of the reformers, and then all the, all the Waldenses decided to become Protestant. And uh, you say that was the end of the Waldenses. Well, it was, but they still kind of maintained their culture. So if you see anything that says like the Waldensian church, <coughs> that would be a Presbyterian church with Waldensian roots, or Valdivia actually kind of came from that name too. So, so culturally, they, they, they kind of survived with, with, uh, within the reform movement. With that, but anyway, they were supposedly wiped out by again the most violence of all the eight groups that we're going to talk about. You know, the Roman Catholics. All right. Uh, another thing about papal succession in 1302, King Philip of France tortured Pope Boniface VII for heresy, or at least King Philip of France uh, said he was a heretic. And after him, he put in a new pope, and Pope Clement V was basically Francis' puppet. So again, so much for papal succession when your previous pope, your successor, was tortured by the king that put you in power. Also, uh, Joan of Arc, who was uh, burned at the stake. Uh, why? For being a heretic. And actually, Joan of Arc knew her theology pretty well, and she did not have any strange or heretical beliefs, except for one thing. She was French, and she thought that the French shouldn't be under English. The English. And coincidentally, the pope at that time was English. So anyway, because she was a heretic and burned at the stake, and of course, you know, heretics would go to hell, right? Well, anyway, within 50 years, they had another pope, and she was proclaimed to be a Roman Catholic 
saints. So how does that work? Did this Joan of Arc go to hell because she was a heretic and the Roman Catholic Church is always right about this? And then 50 years later she went from hell to heaven? Or was something very wrong here? You know, I and you say, well, was that an official pronouncement? Because Roman Catholics say that the Pope can make mistakes, but on his official announcements, he's always right. Well, it seemed pretty official to Joan of Arc, who, who was burned at the stake for that. Um, and the other bull against the, the, the Waldenses, that's as, as official as they get. Okay. Well, it's interesting that you bring up these things because, uh, you know, maybe people out there in uh, the Internet land don't realize that our channel, which Sea uh, Answers TV, our YouTube channel, it has over 720 videos, but of those 720 videos, we have 165 of those videos are dealing with the subject of Roman Catholicism. <laughs> 165 videos. And we have, of those 165, we've got a, interest, a very interesting video by a former Roman Catholic priest, Richard Bennett. For, he was a Roman Catholic priest, a Dominican a priest, for 22 years. And then he got born again and he got saved. But he goes into church history on the Roman popes and how many of them were murdered within their own ranks because there was power plays going on among these people that were vying to become popes. Uh, so... You're just touching just the, the bare tip of the iceberg of all the chicanery and nefarious activities that are going on with that situation. But that's that's a whole show in itself. But I'll, I just want to throw that in. <laughs> yeah. If people want more information, just go to our 165 videos that we have on. Larry, you mentioned earlier multiple popes being alive at the same time. Well, there were um, three different popes. Um, at the time of the Council of Constance. Now, these were all active popes, and each of them said that they were the one and only true pope. And anyway, in, in the Council of Constance from 1414 to 1418, there was a church council that basically reduced these three popes down to only one. They also asked John Huss, who was from Bohemia, the modern-day Czech Republic, to come and debate his views, and the, and, and the emperor gave him a promise of safe conduct. And once he got there, the Catholic Church arrested him and burned him at the stake. And later on, they wanted to discuss with the Hussites, and they invited the, them, the Pope, to come and discuss. And they promised him, they said, we'll give you the same assurance of, same, of safe conduct that you gave John Huss. Anyway, he didn't come. <laughs> I will point out that modern Roman Catholicism has changed. Well, medieval Roman Catholicism said that if you were something else beside Roman Catholic, especially if you were, you know, one of these uh, Protestants or whatever, uh, you would definitely go to hell. All right, as Steve was recounting some of the uh, historical information about the popes, I have some additional information here concerning that. As we see on the screen, historical account of the popes through the ages according to Roman Catholic apologists. And the viewers at home can see... We have uh, all these popes, supposedly an unbroken chain of popes, starting with Pope Peter, the Apostle Peter, in 32 AD, as you can see there, to 67. And then all these other Roman Catholic popes, going from the popes of the age of persecution, as it says here, going into the 2nd century, 
the third century, the fourth century, and as you just keep looking down the list of all these popes, fifth century, sixth century, popes of the early Middle Ages, seventh century, eighth century, ninth century, tenth century, eleventh century, going on to popes of the age of crusades and councils in the eleventh century, then the twelfth century, thirteenth century, popes of the Avignon papacy and the great schism. And, uh, 70 years, there were two simultaneous popes, one in France, one in Rome, and they both claimed to be the sole pope. And it was nicknamed by some Catholics the Babylonian Captivity. Ah, very good, very good. And I see we got Boniface the Eighth right in there, 1294 to 1303. And uh, then going on to the 14th century, the viewers at home can, if you really want to look at these lists in detail, just freeze frame your video on YouTube, and then you can read through all these supposed popes that the Roman Catholic Church has had, 15th century, 16th century, popes of the age of revolution. Then we have the 17th century, the 18th century, the 19th century, and then you have the popes of the modern age in the 19th century. And then we get up to the 20th century. When we look into these final two popes here. We've got uh, Pope uh, Benedict the 16th from 2005 to 2013 and the 266th Pope, Pope Francis from 2013 and following. Now the last two popes were currently living at the same time at the time of this writing. So that's uh, 200, of, supposedly according to the Roman Catholics, 200 and 66 popes in an unbroken chain, although, as Steve said earlier, there was like three popes at one time. Then we've got two popes here that are living at the current time, and you had just mentioned something about one pope in France and some pope somewhere else. Rome, uh, yeah. Uh, so, uh, no matter what, you know, that, that leads to prob problems in just making a list when you have multiple popes at the same time. Uh, which, you know, Roman Catholics, a lot of them will admit to, uh, but still it's, it's very problematic for proving their case. And then uh, looking here, uh, you can see uh, it says, see former Roman Catholic priests for 22 years, Richard Bennett's video called Vatican System, list of murdered popes. 75 popes approved torture, murder, burning at the stake. And 75 popes, one after the other from Innocent III to Pope Pius VII, approved of torture, murder, burning at the stake, confiscation of property of believers, to the six centuries, actually it was 605 years of the Inquisition. It wasn't just believers, it was also Jews were also tortured, and burnt at the stake. Knights Templar was an, an order within the Catholic Church that had rebelled against the Catholic Church. They were also tortured and brought to the stake, but principally believers. And I ask you to look at the video that we have made on the Inquisition called the Catholic Inquisition and the Torture Tools. By the end of this year, 
in English alone because it's in other languages as well, with subtitles, it'll have been viewed over half a million times by the end of this year. It is graphic in showing the actual pictures of torture. You can still find them in museums. In Europe, and we got pictures of the actual tortures, the torture implements. Some of them are horrific to look at. And we got some video footage made professionally with, with due permission showing what it was like to be burnt at the stake or tortured by the Church of Rome. And all of that is in that video. I would ask if you have children watching it that you really get them ready beforehand or you might think it's not suitable when you see the torture and you see what believers went through and others, Jews, Knights Templar. It's horrific. But it's, that's a video that must be seen. The horrendous system. The glorious Reformation, the 16th century, brought a change, and that you would know. Biblical faith was restored. Rights of people were restored. First time that nations really became nations, it was after the Reformation that we got the nation states really set up. And we had great men preaching the true gospel of Christ. It was amazing what happened at the Reformation. Other popes were murdered besides John Paul I. And I would recommend David Yallop's book. You'll see a picture of the cover on the screen, the murder of John Paul I, an investigation into the murder. That, that book has been well known and still sells very well, uh, even as second-hand copies, <laughs> the murder of John Paul I. But there's other murders. For example, in history, Stephen VII, in 897 he died, he was strangled to death. And Stephen IX, in 972, was mutilated. And um, then we have John the twenty, John I beg your pardon, the the twelfth. In nine hundred and sixty-four, he was just murdered, and Benedict the sixth um, was strangled in nine nine hundred and seventy-four, and John the fourteenth in nine hundred and eighty-four was starved to death. Gregory V in 999 was poisoned. Clement II in 1047 also was poisoned. Damasus II was murdered in 1048. And Pope Pius XI, 1939, was allegedly assassinated. And then later, in our own times, in 2013, Ratzinger, who was then Pope Benedict XVI, appears to have been forced to resign, or else face the consequences. 
So it was, um, it's interesting, even the popes themselves are dictated to by the system. Very few people realize, and these historical deaths of murders and strangulation and poisoning of popes in previous times is quite interesting. Now, if you want to see a full list of some of these popes, as we just saw there, and where this information is coming from, uh, you can see here on this page the reference material for that. And you can also see a chronological list of popes who are alleged to have been murdered, such as John the Eighth, uh, 872 to 882, allegedly poisoned and then clubbed to death. You have Adrian the Third, 884 to 885, allegedly poisoned. You also have Leo V, 903, allegedly strangled. John the Tenth, 914 to 928, allegedly smothered with pillow. Uh, Stephen the seventh, in parentheses the eighth, nine twenty nine to nine thirty one, allegedly murdered. Sergius the fourth, one thousand nine to ten twelve, allegedly murdered. Clement the second, one thousand forty six to one thousand forty seven, allegedly poisoned. And as you go through this list, and it's all right there for the viewers at home to look at this thing, we see. Uh, murders, poisonings, ill treatment. You've got the Boniface the Eighth, 1294 to 1305. Death possibly, though unlikely, from the effects of ill treatment one month before. You have a lot of poisonings going on here as you're reading through this list of these popes dying. And of course, that's a power position to be a pope. So there's a lot of political intrigue in who gets to be the pope. And you need, a, you need a lot of influence. And it's just like reading the Old Testament in a lot of cases. When you see the kings of Israel, uh, the northern kingdom, uh, all those wicked kings in the northern kingdom after uh, David and uh, Solomon, uh, it seems like a lot of them were killed off and their, their throne was taken by the murderer. <laughs> and, yeah, and, and Larry, even if the successor pope wasn't the one who killed the predecessor pope, he was typically put in power by the people who, who killed the predecessor popes. So, so much for papal succession. There you go. There you go. Well, anyway, the information is there on your screen. You can see that. And then one last thing here I'd like to mention, and this is actually, and I, I definitely want Steve's comment here. This, this is a, a response Steve gave to me. A while back when I was answering uh, some Roman Catholic on YouTube, we had made a comment, and I sent it to Steve because he's our expert on church history. And uh, as you can see here, this is actually Steve's reply that he sent to me that I then posted on YouTube. In fact, I like this comment so much, I posted it on all 165 of our videos. <laughs> so anyone that goes down in the, the comment section of any of our videos on Roman Catholic dogmas, doctrine, and religion, they're going to run right into Steve, and here's his comment. It says, well, he's replying to this. Does the Roman Catholic religion really have a 2,000-year-old history as Roman Catholics constantly argue for? Again and again, Romanists argue that their Roman church organization and its hierarchy go back to Pope Peter in the first century. Our director of research, Steve Morrison, webmaster for www.historycart.com, which deals with early Christian church history, 
www.biblequery.org, which answers over 8,500 Bible questions. Now, that's higher now. You're always... It's about 8,900 now. Yeah, see, so whenever I put something on paper a few months ago, it's already a lot more by the time... It, <laughs> the last time I put it... So by the time people actually see this on YouTube, it'll probably be over 9,000. But anyway, here it says 8,500, but... That's always going up because Steve's constantly answering questions on that website. And then we also have a third website that Steve does, www.muslimhope.com, which refutes the false religion of Islam created by Muhammad. Uh, has, and here's what Steve had to say in reply to this comment about the Roman Catholic religion's 2,000-year history. Here's what Steve said. Uh, quote, Hi, just a little correction here. It was said... Yet only the Catholic Church and its 2,000-year history can match, end quote. And then Steve says, There was no Roman Catholic Church back then. The first person to be called a pope was Heraclius of Alexandria, 236 to 249 A.D. The Copts traced their popes from him, not Roman Catholics. The first Roman bishop to be called a pope was Sericius, 384 to 399 A.D. after Nicaea. So the cops have prior claim to a pope, not Roman Catholics. A Roman Catholic today cannot consider the cops as non-Christians since the Roman Catholic Church in more recent times has restored communion with the Coptic Church. Furthermore, the Greek Orthodox Church, which Orthodox people would argue goes back farther than the Roman Catholic Church, never needed a pope. The 325 A.D. Council of Nicaea established four central metropolitan churches, not one. So if you accept the tradition of the church councils, then by church tradition, Rome is not the center of the church. The Orthodox Church did not break away from the Roman Catholic Church. Both churches excommunicated each other. So if you're a Roman Catholic who wants to follow the truth, you must stop saying things like, quote, Yet only the Catholic Church and its 2,000-year history can match, end quote, because it is a provable historical lie, as any Greek Orthodox or Copt will strenuously tell you. As Protestants, we want to go back to the Bible, not man-made organizations with their brutal massacres, papal assassinations, anti-popes, forced disposition of popes, a pope tried for heresy after his death, torture and inquisitions, burning their own saint at the stake, etc. Now, Steve mentioned that earlier when he talked about uh, Joan of Arc, but that is not my main point here. My main point is that if a Roman Catholic brings up, quote, yet only the Catholic Church and its 2,000-year history can match, end quote, once they have been shown that it is provably false, they have to now stop saying that or else they have disqualified themselves as someone who cares about the truth, end quote. And I thought, Steve, you, that was just a great comment you made on this whole matter. And since you're here on the show with me, you have anything to add to that or anything else you'd like to just tack on to that? Uh, no, that, that pretty much covered it. If um, you value truth above everything... <clears throat> You know, you can't be making um, false statements like, you know, my uh, group went, was the only one that went back or something. And you have to also have honesty 
and say where um, you know your group may have done good things and your group may have done some bad things too. And uh, certainly with uh, Protestants, you know, unfortunately, I would have to say, you know, Protestants have done some bad things also. But um, but we're trying to, but we base on the Bible, not just on tradition, because if we base on tradition, whether it be Roman Catholic tradition, Orthodox tradition, or even a Protestant tradition, then we're off base. We need to base upon God and the Bible. Amen, amen. And as people can see here, for more on the subject of early church history as it pertains to Roman Catholicism, see Steve Morrison's 18-part church history video series on YouTube. Some of the titles from that series are Early Christian Church History Number 3, Early Christians Quoted Scripture Without a Romanist or KJV Bible. Also, Early Church History Number 11, Bible is Historically Reliable but Not Roman Catholic Traditions. The links are there. Early Christian Church History Number 14, Pre-Nicene 325 AD Church was not a Roman Catholic system. We also have early Christian church history number 15. There was no pope or cardinals. Did have sex and money rules. And the links there. Early Christian church history number 16. Government and rulers, Roman Catholicism, veils true gospel. And then of course particularly see Steve's website www.historycart.com other videos we've done on early Christian church history and Roman Catholicism are Early Christian Church History Proves Roman Catholicism False Historical Split Between Roman Catholicism and the Christ of the Scripture Man's Word or God's Word The original early Christian church was not a Roman Catholic system of salvation. And of course, as you see further on the page there, we already mentioned the uh, list of murdered popes and so forth on those videos, but we've got 165 videos, so there's plenty, <laughs> plenty of documentation. According to Pope Francis, they've said even some atheists and people of other religions can go to heaven also, which kind of rankles a lot of more traditional Catholics that their pope, current pope has done a complete about-face uh, from what historically Roman Catholicism has taught. So one well, of the two you know, is wrong. You know where he's getting that from. He's getting, Francis is getting that from Vatican II and the Lumen Gentium. In fact, we've got quite a few videos on that as well. In fact, uh, uh, Rob Zins, who's one of our uh, frequent guests on our channel, he's got a, a degree from uh, Dallas Theological Seminary. But anyway, he was also a former Roman Catholic. But he had a debate with uh, an official representative of the Diocese of Austin here in, in, in Austin, Texas. Uh, the, the Roman Catholic community here in Austin, Texas was getting upset with us on our cable access TV shows. And so they sent a Monsignor Ed Jordan to debate against Rob Zins. And it was amazing to hear that debate. In fact, anyone that wants to see that can uh, see that debate between Monsignor Ed Jordan, the official representatives of the Diocese of Austin and Rob Zins, and we call that the anything goes faith because uh, the Monsignor said you can be a, a crocodile worshiper on, in the, on the Amazon River and you'll be okay because <laughs> it's not just atheists and everything. It's almost anybody with any kind of sincere belief in anything religious and you're going to be okay. And the Bible's not important. But anyway, we find that uh, in Lumen Gentium, 
of the Vatican II documents, which came out uh, and was finished in 1965. Uh, it basically says the Muslims uh, worship the same God as Christians. Uh, you know, you've got uh, the atheists are, because of their sincerity, can, uh, you know, be okay by God. This this word. This is where Francis is getting this stuff. He's getting it right from Vatican II. And like I said, we've got several, we've got quite a few videos on that subject already. But anyway, go ahead. Second Timothy 3, 1 through 5. It, Paul warns there will be those who ha hold to the form of godliness but deny its power. And Paul gives us a command. And the command is, have nothing to do with them. So if there are people, whether Roman Catholic, Protestant, or whatever, um, that deny uh, that not just interpretations, but what the Bible actually says, you know, clearly, then we are to have nothing to do with it if we're going to, uh, to obey, you know, God and obey what Paul said. Uh, moving on, so in core meal we talked about the cops, the Orthodox, and the Roman Catholics, and now we're going to get to the group that I predict that most of our viewers know the least about, if anything at all. And these, are, these mysterious groups are called the Nestorians. Okay, Nestorius was a patriarch of Constantinople, and he was a Nicene Trinitarian Christian, but he was excommunicated at the Council of Ephesus in 431 AD for two things. One, he denied saying that Mary was the mother of God, also translated bearer of God. And second... He said that Jesus had two separate wills, a human will and a divine will. Okay. Now, as Protestants, we think Mary, mother of God. Well, Mary, mother of Jesus, or Mary, mother of Christ, certainly. Mary, mother of God the Son, certainly. But Mary, mother of God, um, sounds like is Mary, mother of the Father and mother of the Holy Spirit. You know, that's, that, that's not right at all. Well, actually, those who hold the Mary, Mother of the God, which includes Orthodox and Roman Catholic, they don't believe that Mary is the Mother of the Father or the Holy Spirit either. But they want to use that unfortunate language to, to emphasize that Jesus was just one and one in will. There weren't two Jesuses inside one body. Okay? And Nestorius may not have actually believed in two Jesuses in one body, but some of his stuff kind of comes uncomfortably close to that. Okay, so Nestorius was definitely off. But after he was kicked out, he wrote a work called The Bazaar of Heracleides. And in that work, we see Nestorius, not what the council said about him, but we see what Nestorius said in his own words. And he's not as extreme as the council made him out to be. They made him out to be this devilish monster and everything. So Nestorius, in my opinion, and the opinion of evangelicals, as well as uh, Roman Catholics and Orthodox, he was still wrong, though, okay? Uh, Nestorians, since they were kicked out, they kind of um, took the mission of, of spreading the gospel to the world more seriously than, let's say, the Roman Catholic Church, especially in the East. So they spread throughout the Persian Empire. The Persians that sometimes persecuted them, but sometimes were tolerant of them because they were different, you know, than the Roman Catholics. Uh, the, they went to India. Um, they went throughout the Central Asia, and they went through even to mainland China. They were persecuted in many places. They uh, did make a monument in Xi'an in western China, though, 
uh, around, I think, 931 or so AD. And they were actually prominent at the Chinese court. But they were persecuted by Mongols, and they were persecuted by Muslims. And there was this one Muslim who had his own horde named Tamerlane, and he just killed lots and lots of all kinds of people. I mean, including like a, a mound of skulls in Iran. Um, and then afterwards, he built a white mosque in Samarkand. But oh, Tamerlane was one of the worst killers back then. I mean, he, he just practically wiped out the Zoroastrians in, in those countries he was spreading his armies through. Uh, in fact, we've got a video that deals specifically uh, with Tamerlane. It's our 1,400 years of Islamic history video. And uh, we have a whole section on him, but he was particularly brutal, as you're saying. Here's a picture of one of the two brothers suspected of bombing the Boston Marathon, who was named Tamerlane Sarnev. That means he was named after the 14th century Turkic ruler Tamerlane, also spelled Tamburlane, but more commonly Timur or Timur, who called himself the Sword of Islam. Tamerlane Timur, says Wikipedia, was known for his butchery and his systematic use of terror. His empire stretched thousands of miles, encompassing parts among other countries, Turkey, India, Iran, Afghanistan, and also Kyrgyzstan, where the Boston suspects were born. Tamerlane was a devout Muslim who referred to himself as the Sword of Islam, converting nearly all the Borjigin leaders to Islam during his lifetime. His armies were exclusively multi-ethnic. During his lifetime, Timur would emerge as the most powerful ruler in the Muslim world after defeating the Mamluks of Egypt and Syria, the emerging Ottoman Empire, and the declining Sultanate of Delhi. Timur had also decisively defeated the Christian Knights Hospitaller at Smyrna. Timur's armies were feared throughout Asia, Africa, and Europe, sizable parts of which were laid to ruin by his campaigns. Scholars estimate that his military campaigns caused the deaths of 17 million people, amounting to about 5% of the world population. Taking advantage of his Turco-Mongolia heritage, Timur frequently used either the Islamic religion or the law and traditions of the Mongol Empire to achieve his military goals or domestic political aims. This shows that Islam is not only religious, but is also political. He not only consolidated his rule at home by the subjugation of his foes, but sought extension of territory by encroachments upon the lands of foreign potentates. His conquests to the west and northwest led him to the lands near the Caspian Sea and to the banks of the Ural and the Volga. His incursion into Persia was notable in part for what Tamerlane ordered his troops to do after the brief siege of the city of Isfahan. When Isfahan surrendered to Timur in 1387, he treated it with relative mercy as he normally did with cities that surrendered. However, after the city revolted against Timur's taxes by killing the tax collectors and some of Timur's soldiers, Timur ordered the massacre of the city's citizens with the death toll reckoned at between 100,000 and 200,000. An eyewitness counted more than 28 towers constructed of about 
1,500 heads each. This has been described as a systematic use of terror against towns, an integral element of Tamerlane's strategic element, which he viewed as preventing bloodshed by discouraging resistance. He massacred 100,000 captives at Delhi and at least 20,000 more at Baghdad. The Baghdad death toll came after Timur ordered that every soldier should return with at least two severed human heads to show him. Many warriors were so scared they killed prisoners captured earlier in the campaign just to ensure they had heads to present to Timur. In all, the conquests of Timur are claimed to have caused the deaths of up to 17 million people, an assertion impossible to verify. Timur's campaign sometimes caused large and permanent demographic changes. Northern Iraq remained predominantly a Syrian Christian until attacked, looted, plundered, and destroyed by Timur, leaving its population decimated by systematic mass slaughter. Timur's devotion to Islam, especially in his waning years, was never in question. But in his earlier well, adulthood, he seems to have been more of a religious opportunist who just loved to subjugate and plunder. Notes one reviewer of Justin Marazzi's biography, Tamerlane, Sword of Islam, Conqueror of the World. Timur rationalized his conquest by appeal to Islam, but he rates as one of the greatest butchers of Muslims of all time. His forces were hired and kept loyal with generous shares of the spoils of conquest. And the cynical deal was, quote, no jewels, no jihad, end quote. If a city were rich enough to merit plundering, it would qualify as a city of bad Muslims to be blessed with Timur's corrections and a pretext found. If it happened to be filled with crusaders or Hindus, all the better. The Ottomans themselves fresh from annihilating the flower of Christian knighthood at Nicopolis, were swept aside almost without effort. Clearly, Timur's blessings to his religion were equivocal. Campaigns against Delhi and Christian enclaves in Asia Minor allowed slightly more convincing pretext of religious war. And in his later years, he directed his energies more consistently against non-Muslims as he felt immortality approach. But his campaigning character seems to have been defined by the lust for conquest. Go ahead. He probably killed more Muslims than just about anybody else. And he was Muslim. That's correct. In fact, Muslims end up killing their own because Muhammad made that statement that uh, if you think somebody's a Muslim or is a hypocrite that also claims to be a Muslim, well, you can kill them. And so, obviously, the Shiites uh, kill the Sunnis, the Sunnis kill the Shiites, whoever they think is a hypocrite, and they're just following Muhammad's command. Long and short of it, the historians lived in kind of a dangerous part of the world. Most of them died out by 1200 to 1400 A.D., and there are only about 800,000 left today. A third thing that's uh, bad about historians is they really admire Theodore of Mopsuestia, and he was a uh, Pelagian. 
And later on, he seemed to kind of um, maybe condemn Plagianism at, toward the end of his life. But Plagius, he, Augustine wrote against Plagius. Plagius said that Adam and Eve didn't do anything that relates to us except set a bad example. And so they said that man is basically, when he's born, is morally neutral. Uh, and the Nestorians, in one of their conferences, they especially honored Theodore of Mopsuestia, who, who was, who was a, a very well-known Pelagian. Nestorians first came to China about 781 AD and spread Christianity, or, or their version there. And later on, um, they were kind of kicked out of, of China by the emperor, who didn't like foreign religions. And so many of them went north. Now, north of China is the Mongols. And they actually converted a tribe of Mongols, uh, one of the tribes. But after they did, that tribe kind of got wiped out by the other tribes of Mongols. All right. Uh, so I lived from eastern Mongolia through China to all the way to Syria. And they were responsible for the silk trade, uh, for the silk road of trade, because how do you have all these nomadic, maybe even barbarians in Central Asia? How in the world can you run valuable silk and, and, and other goods through there without getting pillaged and have any kind of a, a trade road between it? Well, you had to have the different groups be able to trust each other and do business with each other. And if they were all Nestorians, then they could trust each other even though different tribes. And, and they've even found a Turkish soldiers from way back then that had crosses tattooed on their foreheads. Unfortunately, they didn't stay that way. In Western China, the Uyghurs and others, they converted from Nestorianism to Manichaeism, which is what Augustine was before he became a Christian. And then later on, they converted to Islam. So things are all different today, but, you know, it's kind of interesting, the prominent historical, uh, I, I guess, uh, effect that they had. Um, and the Nestorian Bible, it's like ours, uh, same books in the New Testament and everything. They do have Psalms, you know, we have 150 Psalms in our Bible, uh, whether you're Roman Catholic, Orthodox, or Protestant, or Jewish, 150 Psalms. Well, Nestorians have Psalms 151 to 155 which were not at all by David and added extra. So there are that there. So they're kind of, you know, there aren't so many today. If there were an Astorian church around, could I become a member of it? No. The, the fact of, of Christ having these two wills, two, I guess, aliens. <laughs> but they did, you know, do some good things, and they were predominantly peaceful. Um, but, you know, so that's kind of one of the more interesting and maybe mysterious groups of Christians. Or so-called Christians, right? <laughs> go, they go by just because you have the name so quote Christian unquote doesn't necessarily mean they're actual authentic biblical Christians as defined by Scripture, and that's the difference of what we're basically doing here in this show is just kind of drawing that distinction as we go. But anyway, go ahead. So the the next group isn't really a single group, but a hodgepodge of groups, multi-grain groups. And the, the key characteristic of these is not that they agree with each other, they don't, but the one thing they have in common is rather than just having one feed, these groups generally claim to follow the Bible plus the Bible plus the modern prophet or the Bible plus some leader or, or some other scripture. So the Bible plus Joseph Smith for Mormons, the Watchtower for uh, Jehovah's Witnesses, um, Ellen G. White for Seventh-day Adventists, at least most Seventh-day Adventists, uh, Mary Baker Eddy for Christian Science, Reverend Moon for Moonies or Unificationists, or others. 
And so it's kind of like, well, yeah, they want to say the Bible's true, and they want to say they believe it, but it's really not good enough for them. As Reverend Moon said, the Bible, in his view, the Bible was fine from 2,000 years ago, but we need a higher standard today. And so that's why he wrote his book and want people to join his group and pay him money. Um, that was the divine principle that he right. wrote. And we have no shortage of books uh, written by guys saying that, that this is the truth you know, in, in, in modern times. And so I just group these all together as multi-grain groups. Okay? The three largest groups, which are probably together make up the vast the majority of all the numbers, are the Seventh-day Adventists. And Seventh-day Adventists emphasize that no, Ellen G. White's words are just as important as the Bible. And they say that there's a mark of the beast, and the mark of the beast is worshiping on Sunday in Revelation, ungodly in that way. Well, it's very cultic. It's very cultic because uh, I can tell you, uh, once again, our YouTube channel uh, has a lot of videos on Seventh-day Adventism. We have a, a, a whole playlist on Seventh-day Adventism. And just uh, a couple of years ago, from the time of this video, uh, they had their world conference uh, in San Antonio, Texas. So, you know, San Antonio is not that far from here in Austin, Texas. And uh, so my video man and me, we couldn't resist the opportunity to go go to this, this kind of like world conference uh, over there in San Antonio. So we went. We've got the video up on uh, YouTube right now. It's over two hours long, and, and we got video footage of their exposition, of their... Uh, all our delegates meeting, and it was by the providence of the Lord that we actually went in where their delegates were voting on whether they should accept Ella G. White as this prophetess-type lady. And we just happened to be there at that moment when they're voting on whether they should keep her in this elevated prophetess-type status. And they voted to, yes, yes, she's got this prophetess-type Status. We got that on video, uh, and that video is about to go over three hundred thousand views. I think last time I looked, but uh, so they are holding on to her because really that's the personality of the Seventh Day Adventists. They're they're honed in on this keeping Old Testament laws and dietary laws and and keeping the Sabbath and all all this works righteousness to attain their salvation. Because uh, after all, they've got to they've got to go. Uh, you know, they they pervert uh, uh, the book of Daniel, uh, where they have this investigative judgment, where you won't know for sure if you're saved until you go there. And Jesus reviews the kind of good works you did in your life, and then he makes a decision whether you can get in or you or either your soul is annihilated into oblivion, because they don't really believe in an everlasting burning hell. But anyway, I could go into all this, but viewers at home, if they want more on Seventh-day Adventism, just go to our playlist. We've got, I think it's got about 30-something videos on those guys. But anyway, go ahead. Uh, all right, so, so besides Seventh-day Adventists, the two, the two largest groups after them are Mormons and Jehovah's Witnesses. Now, the thing that this kind of um, disappointed me is that a non-Christian could run into a Seventh-day Adventist or, or a Mormon or a Jehovah's Witness and they could say, oh, they have the Bible, they quote from the Bible, therefore they must be evangelical Christians. And they're not at all. It's like imposters. And so Satan is effective of having imposters. And he said, yeah, Seventh-day Adventists, if you don't know any better, it looks like that they 
um, you know, care a lot about the Bible, but then you find out that, yeah, they do, but they care about L.N.C. White just about as much. Joseph, uh, Mormons, you know, they, they quote the Bible, but then you see that their views of Joseph Smith and their subsequent prophets are even greater than the Bible. And, 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 and then, uh, so these guys, yeah, they can look like evangelicals and sound like evangelicals, but they're not evangelicals at all. Well, when you're dealing with Mormons, it's particularly interesting because you can ask a Mormon, do you believe in the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit? And those young Mormon missionaries will look you right in the eye and they say, oh, yes, sir, we believe in the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. But the problem is semantics. <laughs> what do they mean when they say Father, Son, and Holy Spirit? Of course, uh, the Father is Elohim. According to Brigham Young, he was uh, Adam. Uh, and had thousands of wives. That's right, that's right, that's from the Doctrine and Covenants of Brigham Young. And then uh, Jesus is the, the spirit brother of the devil, and uh, of course the Holy Spirit is this other God, because they believe there's more gods than there are uh, grains of sand on a million earths, and that they'll become God of their own planet at some point if they become, if, they, if they're good Mormons. Now, uh, the, the women don't get to do that, though. They can only be goddess wives of the Mormon men who get to be gods of their own planets, but then the wives can be a like a goddess uh, of, of the men, but the women really don't get to have their own planet. They have to be subservient to their husbands in that kind of case. Uh, so it's exactly like you say. They use all the terms, Bible terms, but they reconfigure the meanings of what that, you know, the gospel and everything else into something else. And once again, as a, a plug for viewers at home. We have a whole playlist on uh, uh, Mormonism on our YouTube channel. So I think there's like 20-something videos about them right there. In fact, uh, uh, we have, uh, I think I've got two videos called Mormons in My Living Room, where I'm actually debating Mormon missionaries, and they're telling, just like I mentioned, Jesus is the spirit brother of the devil. They're actually saying that. Uh, coming right out of, the, out of the mouths of the Mormon missionaries themselves, that that's because I remember asking, well, should we pray to Jesus? Should we should we uh, uh, worship him as God? And they're going like, oh, I don't know. Uh, really, she should be worshiping the Father, you know. But you know, I'll let them speak for themselves in the videos. But it goes back to what you're saying. Essentially, they they use the words, but it's it's counterfeit. It's not true biblical Christianity. It's a, it's, a, it's a used car salesman's idea of what the Bible should say if you're trying to sell something and they're trying to sell Mormonism, which is just uh, like a lemon if you're talking about cars. I mean, it's, it's not going to do you any good. It's not going to get you down the road very far either. Anyway, go ahead, brother. Okay. The next group we'll talk about is evangelicals. And so we would know about that. However, you know, we have to recognize that evangelicals among themselves do differ on some minor things um, and, and secondary things, too. And then also just kind of ask the question, well, how would evangelicals be look, uh, looked at by some of these other groups, too? And so, so evangelicals, uh, one key factor of them versus the other views is that they value God's word over tradition. Now, the Roman Catholic Church, sometimes they talk about the three-legged stool, which could mean the popes, the councils, and the Bible. Or they might talk about tradition and the popes and the Bible. 
In the Eastern Orthodox Church, it has been said that someone who's a chief theosis or God, that they actually wouldn't need the Bible because their words would be just as good as the Bible, but they wouldn't necessarily contradict the Bible. So the, the Orthodox Church, they do you know, Bible reading and all that, but they don't hold it necessarily as any higher than some of the words of the other people that they value as saints. But evangelicals value God's word over tradition. In fact, the pastor in the church that, that I went to said that you know, he expected people to, in his congregation, to compare his word with what the Bible said. And if and when they found that he said something that was not against the Bible, the pastor would expect them to follow what the Bible said and to not to follow him. So the pastor himself said, you know, follow the Bible more than me if you find any difference. Uh, there are roughly about 640 million evangelicals, and that includes about 18 million or so, we estimate, in mainland China. This also includes uh, conservative Protestants, Charismatics, Bible churches, and also an estimated 40 million uh, conservative Anglicans. Uh, speaking of Anglicans, in about 1534 A.D., Henry VIII started the Anglican Church of England. The Pope refused to annul his marriage, and so he broke off and started his own, and that's where the Anglican Church came from. And then during the American Revolution, the Anglicans in, in America, many of them broke off and became the Episcopalian Church, which today is uh, very liberal. Among evangelicals, uh, Lutherans and Calvinists, they persecuted Anabaptists, they persecuted each other, and also Roman Catholics. So there was a lot of uh, bad stuff going around in, in that time period. But anyway, uh, for different evangelical groups, there are like three distinctives that they all kind of agree upon. Trusting God's Word, the Bible, as the highest authority in your life, number one. Number two, believing and seriously following the New Testament of God as the human writers intended it to be. And number three, salvation by God's grace alone, not works, through faith alone, in Christ alone. Now, if those kind of unite evangelicals, there are three mainly kind of subgroups of evangelicals. One group, some people call them fundamentalists, and many of them have strict rules on no drinking, no dancing, blue laws, things like that. They would probably be a minority. Okay, another group would be maybe regular evangelicals, at least what I call them, in various denominations. They have differing views on things like the age of the earth, and some examples of maybe people like James Dobson and Norm Geisler. And then you have another uh, group, it's not really separate from the second, but it's a little distinct, neo-evangelicals, and that would be people like C.S. Lewis and Rick Warren, and some of them believe the Bible is infallible, but not inerrant while the other two would say that the Bible is inerrant. Inerrant means without any error, and infallible just means without error in faith or practice. Okay, so, so that's how one way of looking at, at evangelicals. Before you move on to the next group, I wanted to throw in my two cents worth about evangelicals, uh, simply because I've kind of made a big deal about it over the years. Uh, we've got a video that's uh, on YouTube called... Uh, 87% of evangelicals do not know what the gospel is or what justification is. And it's based on Pew Research and uh, Barna polls and all these types of things. You know, like you're getting 50% of them thinking that your good works get you to heaven. Now, these people are claiming to be evangelicals. So basically all I want to say at this point is that what you outlined is, is right. I mean, I've no problem with that. The problem is 
A lot of these people that claim to be evangelicals don't even know what the gospel is, and they don't know what justification is. And so it's become, I like what James White said about it. He's one of my favorite apologists uh, on his Dividing Line show. Uh, what he, he basically just says, uh, they're called evangelicals, but I don't really know what to call them anymore. <laughs> it's because they're so all over the board. And uh, so there's a problem there in a distinction of what is an evangelical and what does he actually believe. And when you look at the results of uh, polls among evangelicals, a lot of them don't even believe that the devil exists. They think their works are going to save them. Uh, they, they have all these convoluted ideas uh, that totally disagree with what the scripture teaches. But that's a subject for another time, but I would, I would encourage people to check out that video we've got uh, based on uh, research. 87% of evangelicals don't know what the gospel is and they don't know what uh, justification is. And it's interesting, the Southern Baptist Convention says of all their congregations in the, the research they've done of the Southern Baptists, which would be considered evangelicals, they say, they say that uh, only 17% of their congregations give any money at all to the Southern Baptist Convention. In other words, uh, they're not, you know, and they're not counting someone throwing a dollar in the collection plate. But they're saying that 83% of the people in the Southern Baptist Convention don't give a dime for the work of Christ, which tells you something about their spiritual condition. For the viewers at home, here's a statement about C.S. Lewis that we've placed in the comments section uh, under a lot of our videos on YouTube. And uh, you can freeze frame it if you'd like to see a little bit more about this. We'll place the different pages of it here on the screen. And as I said, you can freeze frame each page, read the information, and go on from there. On page 35 of The Grand Miracle and Other Selected Essays, Lewis said, quote, The time is always ripe for reunion. Divisions between Christians are a sin and a scandal, and Christians ought at all times to be making contributions toward reunion, unquote. Lewis bent over backwards to find common ground with all denominations, excluding from his books any doctrine that might be offensive to anyone. And this to the point that even Mormons enjoy reading his writings. In his book, Mere Christianity, Lewis's stated purpose is to provide a non-controversial theology of all things. I, never, I could never dream of a non-controversial theology. What doctrine in God's Word has not been the battleground for, a great, for great controversy through the ages? His theology is a generic kind of Christianity that suits everybody who can in any way relate to God. In the foreword to Mere Christianity, Lewis says that uh, he submitted this book to four clergymen, an Anglican, a Methodist, a Roman Catholic, and a Presbyterian, for criticism before its publication. He wanted to make sure he didn't offend anybody. In his books, 
Lewis also, and this is probably where our children come in mostly today, he sought to blend paganism with Christianity. He had a certain respect and awe for pagan religion. In his book, C.S. Lewis, A Biography, Roger L. Green quotes Lewis on page 276 in referring to Lewis's travels in the Mediterranean. Quote, At Daphne, it was hard not to pray to Apollo the healer, but somehow one didn't feel it would have been wrong. Would have been on, it would have only been addressing Christ's subspecie Apollonus. Unquote. The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, and all of his books promote the idea that Christianity and paganism can be blended together. The Chronicles of Narnia are an attempt to blend Christianity and paganism using thinly veiled pagan gods and goddesses like Bacchus as characters. He gives them other names, but it's thinly veiled reference to these pagan god. In Prince Caspian, on page 192, Aslan, who is supposed to represent Christ, leads in a Bacchanalian orgy. His chronicles actually serve as an introduction of children to the philosophies of the occult-slash-pagan world. How can this be? when paganism and Christianity are so diametrically opposed. Paul says in 2 Corinthians 6, 14 and 18, that God requires separation of his people from paganism. Listen to 2 Corinthians 6, 14. Be ye not unequally yoked together with unbelievers. For what fellowship hath righteousness with unrighteousness? And what communion hath light with darkness? Then verse 18, Wherefore, come out from among them, and be ye separate, saith the Lord, and touch not the unclean thing, and I will receive you. In summary then, what C.S. Lewis believed, though he professed to be a Christian, was contrary to biblical Christianity. The last question I, with which I want to deal in the message is, why preach a sermon on C.S. Lewis? I want to give you about five reasons. First of all, because of Lewis's widespread popularity and influence in today's Christianity. Lewis is popular, as I stated, among Catholics, Pentecostals, occultists, Baptists, conservatives, evangelical, uh, evangelicals, and all other stripes of Christians today. He is also very popular in homeschooling circles. And that's one reason I wanted to preach this message, because uh, as far as I know, all of our children are homeschooled. Why is he so popular? Well, there's several reasons. For one, because he has great powers of communication. Brother, he knows how to get an idea across. For another, he could illustrate everything clearly. A third reason is because his books are so easy to read. 
Fourth, he is popular because of the spiritual weakness and vulnerability of modern Christians. And I'll have more to say about that in a moment. Fifth, he is popular because most of today's Christians want the world's approval. And C.S. Lewis keeps Christians from being called fools for Christ's sake. The mention of his name gives them acceptance with the world by giving them the endorsement of an intellectual who is respected by the world. Why preach on C.S. Lewis? Second, because Christians are required to investigate and test all religious teaching before accepting it. Turn to 1 John 4, 1. 1 John chapter 4, verse 1. Christians are required to investigate and test all religious teaching before they accept it. 1 John 4, 1 says to Christians, Beloved, believe not every spirit, but try the spirits, whether they are of God, because many false prophets are gone out into the world. We must measure every book and every teacher by the yardstick of God's holy word. Look at Isaiah 8 and verse 20. I don't know how many times I've come back to this verse in thinking about different people and their new theologies or their distinct theologies. Isaiah 8 and verse 20. Isaiah chapter 8 and verse 20. To the law and to the testimony, that is, to the Old Testament Scriptures, to the Scriptures. If they speak not according to this word, the Scriptures, it is because there is no light in them. Now turn to Galatians 1, 9. Galatians chapter 1 and verse 9. We must measure every book and every teacher by the Word of God. Galatians 1, 9, as we said before, so say I now again, if any man preach any other gospel unto you than that ye have received, let him be accursed. Next, turn to 2 Timothy 4, 3 and 4. 2 Timothy 4, 3 and 4. This certainly describes the age in which we live, when so many professing Christians have fallen for this man and others like him. For the time will come when they will not endure sound doctrine, but after their own lust shall they heap to themselves teachers, teachers having itching ears, and they shall turn away their ears from the truth and shall be turned unto fables. Isn't that a significant word? Fables means myths. I ask you today, what I'm asking you today is this. Look at God's Word and look at this man's life and teachings and then decide how to think of C.S. Lewis and his works. Why preach a sermon on C.S. Lewis? Thirdly, because of the shallowness and lack of spiritual discernment among professing Christians today. Modern Christians are alarmingly ignorant of God's Word and spiritual things. 
Most Christians don't seem to have the spiritual discernment to realize who or what C.S. Lewis was, and thus they promote his works as being great Christian books. Uh, you know, after reading these things, I wonder if these people have really read what C.S. Lewis said. Did you know that many churches today have even used the Chronicles of Narnia for their Sunday school curriculum? Why preach a sermon on C.S. Lewis? Fourthly, because God's Word commands His preachers to identify and warn against false prophets and false teachers. Look at uh, verse 17 of our text in Romans 16. says that we are to mark them, that's false teachers, and avoid them. Now I beseech you, brethren, mark them which cause divisions and offenses contrary to the doctrine which ye have learned, and avoid them. According to what we've seen in this message, C.S. Lewis is not a teacher of the truth. And young Christians should therefore not be directed to his books. We must be careful to direct young Christians to faithful, sound Christian books, whether their authors are famous or obscure. Why preach on C.S. Lewis? Finally, because God's curse is on those who preach other gospels. Turn to Galatians 1, 6 through 8. I want to close by reading this passage in Galatians 1, 6 through 8. The Apostle Paul is speaking to people in the churches of Galatia. And he says, I marvel that ye are so soon removed from him that called you into the grace of Christ unto another gospel, which is not another. But there be some that trouble you and would pervert the gospel of Christ. But though we or an angel from heaven preach any other gospel unto you than that which we have preached unto you, let him be accursed. Let us pray. But anyway, go ahead, proceed with your presentation. All right, well, one problem, though, I guess with the term evangelical, is it's become too popular. And that exactly. uh, people will exactly. say and say they're evangelical, and they don't really have any much clue about what, what it means. So, You're so totally right. Anyway. So, totally so, right. so, so, so moving on to another group, which by definition doesn't exist today, let's look at the anti-Nicene Christians, A-N-T-E, so, so the ones who, Christians before Nicaea. What were they like? Well, sometimes people call them proto-Orthodox, and this would include the main Orthodox Church, and there are also two other quote-unquote denominations, Montanists and Novationists, and the reason that we don't call them Orthodox is because Yes, Orthodox Christians look at them, and Evangelicals and Roman Catholics look at them and say, they are us. We agree with most of what they say. But Nestorians and Copts also look at the anti-Nicene Christians and say, they are us too. <clears throat> and also, even the Arians at 325 AD, who uh, would say they believe the Trinity, but they don't really believe that Jesus was God in the same sense, they would look at the anti-Nicene Christians. So... Proto-Orthodox is maybe a little bit more precise term than Orthodox um, because, you know, there's other stuff like Nestorianism and, and um, the, the Monophysitism. Frankly, the anti-Nicene Christians didn't really, didn't really think about those things and come up with that. But anyway, uh, anti-Nicene Christians 
have aspects of some groups more than others. We'll get into that later. We have about around, oh, let's say 4,200 or so pages of teaching from 85 pre-Nicene writers. So we actually have a whole lot of what they taught. And rather than trying to say that everything that they believed in this sort of presentation, let's do some math. You can go to the webpage www.historycart.com slash what early Christians taught, either .doc or .html, and you will see a list of things that four or more pre-Nicene writers taught and none denied. And that list is 1,097 items so far, and it's probably going to grow a little bit as I find more. All right, and of these things, only five would be considered errors by Christians today, and only 31 or so would be disputed by various churches. So that's a pretty small number. If you want to know what the errors were, um, I'll leave you in suspense. I'll let you look. I will tell you one, though. They heard this concept called atoms, that things are made up of little indiv indivisible balls. And they thought, oh, that's ridiculous. Okay, so that's one of the five. All right, so when they spoke in science and other stuff not in the Bible, they didn't necessarily do too good. But when they spoke in the Bible, they actually did quite good. All right, here's the thing. If you were to put, of all the groups we, we're talking about in cornmeal, or at least if you were to put the, a, a cop, a, a, an average Orthodox, an average Roman Catholic, an average historian, average evangelical, and an anti-Nicene person all in the same room together, the anti-Nicene Christian would probably be closer to each of the other groups than they are to each other. Uh, however, it didn't last forever. After 325 AD, the church changed greatly because it became a powerful as the official religion of Rome. And, for example, and I say this with uh, sadness, around 346 or 348 AD, there was one writer, an ex-astrologer named Formicius Maternus, and he wrote, it was, he was the first person in history, first Christian in history to write that Christians should persecute others. So Christians didn't persecute others before this time. When they got the power, uh, frankly, things started going downhill. So someone once said that Christianity has less to fear from her avowed enemies than from her supposed friends. And when Constantine made Christianity the official empire, and, you know, the soldiers got baptized, whether they really believed or not, and he closed a lot of pagan temples and everything, and the people all started coming to churches. Some would say the church hasn't fully recovered since that. Um, so, anyway, we'll get into more about what they believe, but if you want to know all the nitty-gritty details, go to that webpage. There's also equivalent webpage on, on Bible Query, and you can see what they believe and the documentation of who said what. Okay? And so the last group in cornmeal is L, and that's the quote-unquote liberal Christians, in quotes because these guys, some of them don't even believe in God. They even have a concept in one small group called Christian atheism. Okay, so liberal here means theologically liberal, uh, not politically liberal. I mean, they can go hand in hand, but they're actually can be different. All right. So uh, liberals would generally say that you only follow the parts of the Bible that you agree with and don't follow the parts that you don't like. So it's almost like the Ten Commandments have become the Ten Suggestions, and some of them reject the book of Revelation. All right, now this is where it gets hard to explain because liberals believe all different things. Some liberals deny that Jesus died for our sins, 
Some deny that Jesus physically rose from the dead. But there are different degrees, and some liberals agree that Jesus died for our sins, and some agree that, that, that Jesus physically rose from the dead. So different liberals believe different things. Some deny the virgin birth. Some liberals deny all miracles. Some liberals will say homosexuality is a sin, and some do not. Um, most liberals deny that Jesus is the only way. Of about 293 million, that's about 23 million in the Free Self-Patriotic Movement uh, Church in mainland China, and about 45 million liberal Episcopalians or Anglicans are also included here. So there are Anglicans who are conservative and evangelical, and there are Anglicans who are liberal also. For viewers at home, I'd like to recommend that you see our two-part series on YouTube called Wolves and Sheep's Clothing. Liberal Christianity, number one, in this particular screenshot you're seeing here is from our Denominational False Prophets, Acts 20, 28 through 31 episode. And of course, there's a part two to that, talking about liberal Christianity with Steve Morrison, who's pictured here, and myself, Larry Wessels. And the following is a little clip from that series, dealing with liberal Christianity. A Christian conservative is generally thought of as somebody who believes the Bible is the inerrant word of God without error at all in the original manuscripts and is a person who basically believes that the way that the writers intended for the writing to be taken and the way that we believe God intended for it to be taken, that's the way you should take the Bible. Okay, in contrast to that, a Christian liberal, they may believe the, word, the Bible is the word of God to various degrees and different liberals have kind of different definitions. And they uh, have different ways of interpreting the Bible that really you would not ever want to, let's say, take, interpret a professor's remarks in, 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 in a classroom that way or interpret most things that way, but they tend to want to take things more symbolically or, or, or spiritually. Uh, in talking about liberals, uh, Christian liberals, we need, why don't we step back and let's look at the overall content, context of world religions and just kind of see how things are. Um, if you look at all the, all the people in the world, uh, roughly oh, about a third of them, or 37%, are Christians, at least in name. And of that, about half of them are Roman Catholics, and about half of that number are Protestants, and about half of that number are uh, Eastern Orthodox or other, and other includes a lot of uh, new denominations in, or new groups in Africa, and it includes the house churches in China and others, and only about 2% are, are the cults. Now, of the others, it's about a, a fifth of the world is Muslim, and about a fifth of the world is atheist and agnostic. But we're going to focus mainly on the Christians part. Now, in North America, of all the Christians in the world, uh, about 13% live in North America, which is a far smaller percentage than, you know, a long time ago. And that's about 249, 250 million in North America. Now, in North America, and including Canada and in the United States, about half are Protestant um, and uh, about a, a quarter are Catholic. And today, there's liberalism within Catholicism and within Eastern Orthodox, but we're really going to focus on Protestant liberalism today. Um, so just kind of narrow the topic a little bit. Now, among uh, Protestants, uh, you have conservatives and you have liberals and in the middle you kind of have moderates. Now these words are sort of amorphous and when somebody may be called a moderate, somebody else might call them a liberal and somebody else might call them a conservative. So there is some ambiguity on, on these terms. You have what's called the neo-orthodox 
and then you have the liberals. And this is confusing, is that the liberals refers to the whole group, and liberals also refers to this one segment within the liberal group. So we might call them the, I guess, the liberal liberals. And way over on the right, you have the death of God, which is kind of an unusual, very small group that we'll ex explain in a second. Okay, the neo-orthodox generally believe most of the uh, Christian doctrines that the conservatives believe, but they do not believe that the Bible was inerrant uh, or necessarily even infallible uh, in, its, uh, in, in its original manuscripts. And they think that the key point is the words of God behind the Bible and that the Bible can become the word of God, but the Bible is not the word of God. Okay, the liberals, or the liberal liberals rather, uh, they deny many of the historic Christian doctrines. Uh, many of them deny the virgin birth. Uh, they deny the, re the physical resurrection of Jesus Christ. They deny the substitutionary atonement of Christ. Uh, and, uh, and, so, and they deny the you know, importance of the Bible also. And the far extreme group on, on the right are, there are, is also called Christian atheism. Uh, for example, there was an Anglican bishop in England who was kicked out of the Anglican church because he said he did not believe in God. And many other bishops wrote protesting the action that he got kicked out. Uh, so there are some people who call themselves Christians who don't believe in God. Now, this is a very small segment of the liberals, but just to show you kind of the, 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 the wide range of people who, who are um, with, within this group called liberal Christianity. Steve, thanks for being with us. I want to tell the folks out there, uh, join us again next time for another episode of in Christian Answers Presents. And just remember this from the words of Jesus, John 14, 6. Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man comes to the Father except by me. So it's by Jesus. How do you find out about Jesus? Through the Word of God, as Steve and me have been saying all along. Stick to the Word of God. Get to know God as presented in the Scripture. And through the power of His Holy Spirit, you'll be able to believe, learn, and live the life of Christ as, you, as you're taught by the Word of God. All right, with that, we'll see you next time. God bless you all. If you like our YouTube channel, please subscribe by clicking on the subscribe button and then by also clicking the bell above to get an automatic update whenever we produce another YouTube video for our See Answers TV channel. Please share our videos with your friends and relatives. May God bless you. Only one life will soon be passed. Only what is done for Christ will last. See related videos by tapping or clicking screens.